welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, I pray that I would not get in the way of what you plan to do today, but that you would speak through me. I ask that I'd become less and that you would become more. In Jesus' precious name, amen. As I consider our topic for today, I'm reminded of the many health kicks my mother went on during my childhood. When, for example, I was forced to eat an apple a day because it would keep the doctor away. All that did was give me a strong aversion to apples, to the point that even an artistic rendition of one in my picture books brought on a wave of nausea. Apples are really one thing, but unfortunately, she also went on a cod liver oil kick, forcing a tablespoon of the foul-smelling greasy liquid down our throats each Friday for a while. It was terrible. And I remember her telling me at the time that exposure, even to the worst of things, sometimes could be for our eventual good. I think today's lesson might fall into that category, for I doubt that many of you have ever heard of a teaching on Judas Iscariot. And yet, taking a closer look at the disciple who betrayed Christ will have much to teach us. And I really hope you'll find his story as challenging as I have. Judas was a reasonably common name at the time of the New Testament, as it was a heroic name from Israel's history. Judas Maccabeus had successfully led the Jewish people in a revolt, the revolt of the Maccabees, against their Greek oppressors long before the Romans came on the scene. And so I suppose parents gave their children that name in the hopes that they would be courageous like him. In fact, the name was so popular that two of Christ's disciples and one of his brothers had that name. The one we most remember, though, is Judas Iscariot, and the memory of what he did to betray the Lord who trusted him as a friend has tarnished that name forever. Few would dare call their son Judas today for fear that no one would want to be his friend, for that name is now synonymous with treachery and dishonor. If asked, I'm sure we'd all say that we are quite sure Judas was a monster, a villain, and I know that some of us might even go as far as to wonder if Jesus made a mistake in choosing him. So let me just point out that according to Mark 3 and Luke 6, we know that Jesus spent the night in fervent prayer before choosing any of his disciples, and his choice was no error. I'm sure we imagine ourselves to be very different from Judas, but I think we'll soon see he was not very different to any of us at first. It's certainly worth investigating what led to his downfall. Initially, he was somewhat of an outsider. Eleven of Christ's disciples were from Galilee, with Judas being the only Judean in the group coming from the town of Kerioth in southeast Judea. Though we're not specifically told of his calling, there is absolutely nothing to suggest that he was a self-seeking hypocrite 
from the very beginning. Each of the disciples had turned from the life they knew to follow Jesus, and we can only presume that Judas did that too. And though Matthew had been a tax collector and was obviously very good with numbers, it was Judas who had been entrusted with the position of keeper of their money pouch. He was the one in charge of the support and the gifts that they were given. He made their purchases and gave out assistance to others at Christ's command. A rather promising start, if you ask me. For example... By all accounts, Judas came across as a godly man who was concerned with the poor, often voicing his concern over what appeared to be a waste of their resources. For example, when Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointed Jesus with an expensive bottle of perfume in John chapter 12, verse 5, it was Judas who raised the objection, asking, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And I'm sure that many in the crowd right then might have admired him, thinking, oh, isn't that so like Judas? Always concerned for the less fortunate. It was only years later when John actually wrote down his gospel that he was able to reveal that Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. We're not told at what point he started stealing from their funds, only that he did. I'm sure at first he took only a few small coins from the purse, but the amounts surely grew over time as his moral deterioration set in. And as the amounts increased, I wonder if it was his guilty conscience that eventually led him to hate Jesus. Make no mistake, Judas must have felt convicted as he sat at Christ's feet and heard his teaching, for much of it was about our relationship to money. Think of some of the messages Jesus had spoken in this man's presence. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, for example, Christ had revealed that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And he went on in verse 25 through 34 of that chapter to warn them against letting obsessive worry about material needs overwhelm them, promising that if their Father in heaven could care for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, he could most certainly care for them. It was understandable that those without faith in the living God would run after material wealth, but Jesus assured his followers that our Heavenly Father knows what we need and that if we but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things will be given to us as well. Luke also recounts of how Jesus warned his followers to be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Going as far in Luke 12, 33 to 34, as to urge his followers to sell their possessions and give to the poor, to store up a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, 
telling them, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again and again, Jesus spoke about having a right relationship to wealth, and Judas, as keeper of the money pouch, remained deaf to it all. His lust for money revealed his lack of trust in the Lord, yet his words and his actions never gave him away to any of the others. However, the scriptures are clear that our hearts are not hidden from Christ. So is it possible, perhaps, that those messages on money could have been directed at Judas? I think so. But Judas chose to pay no attention to the Lord's message, hardening his heart so that he could keep stealing from the money bag while acting as one of Christ's faithful followers. Think about it. In John 6, 66-71, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus preached a sermon that was very difficult for people to understand and even harder for them to accept. We're told that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. I am stunned to realize that while many others in the crowd turned away from following Christ that day, Judas did not. He continued to follow. However, whereas Peter and the others became increasingly obedient and dedicated to Christ, Judas became more self-focused and duplicitous. Jesus knew his heart and left nothing to interpretation. Judas wasn't a blunderer. Jesus said he was a devil. Have you ever considered, though, that Judas was a preacher? Look at what Matthew recounts in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Luke also confirms in Luke 9 that the twelve disciples were sent out to preach and that Jesus gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to heal. Judas was a preacher, and that alarms me 
because no one ever guessed what he had been doing in secret or suspected what he was capable of. We see that was true even up to the night that Jesus was betrayed. Luke reports in Luke 22 verses 1 to 6 that as the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot one of the twelve and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Satan could not have entered into Judas if Judas had not first opened the door, for there is no handle on the outside of the door of the human heart. It must be opened from within. Judas made a calculated bargain with Christ's enemies, never realizing that he was also bargaining away his chance of eternal inheritance. Matthew eventually learned more of what happened as that bargain was struck. He added in Matthew 26 verses 14 to 16 that two days before the Last Supper, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. There's a lot of speculation as to why Judas did what he did. Some propose that perhaps he was disappointed that Jesus was not turning out to be the Messiah he'd expected him to be. And because there seemed to be little hope of the worldly advancement Judas had once hoped for by following Christ, he decided to cut his losses by handing Jesus over to those who wanted him dead. That being said, I want you to notice how he went on to the chief priests and the religious leaders in Jerusalem asking them, what are you willing to give me? His only thought was, how will this benefit me? And in the end, the disciples' banker sold the Savior for only 30 pieces of silver. Luke reveals in Luke 22 that before he was arrested, Jesus and his 12 disciples gathered for a dinner that has come to be known as the Last Supper. When they arrived at the borrowed room, Jesus tenderly washed the feet of all 12 from the dirt of their journey. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords humbled himself, taking on the role of the lowliest servant in the house to do what no one else had been willing to do. Though they were all somewhat surprised, I wonder what was going through Judas's mind as Jesus lovingly washed his feet. All we know for sure is that Judas hid his dishonesty well, because after the meal, when Jesus revealed that someone at the table would betray him to the authorities, the shocked disciples all began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this terrible thing. It was really like an echo making its way around the table. 
Lord, surely it isn't me. Oh, surely, Lord, not me. No one asked, Lord, is it Judas? After all, Judas had just dipped his hand into the same bowl of food as Jesus, an act that was reserved for the closest of friends. John recounts what happened next in John chapter 13, verses 27 to 30, as Jesus turned, offering bread to Judas, and told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. The other disciples believed that Jesus was entrusting some special task to Judas since he was in charge of the money. They did not suspect Judas's real intent. So good was his deception. Matthew explains what happened next in chapter 26 of his gospel as Jesus was speaking to his disciples about their lack of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26 verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. I find it incredible that Jesus was willing to call Judas friend up to the very end. And yet, even that seemed to have no effect on this one whose heart was consumed by evil. However, once Jesus had been taken from the garden, tried before the authorities and sentenced to death, it seems that Judas was filled with regret. Matthew discloses in chapter 27 verse 1 that early in the morning all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That is your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Notice the scriptures reveal that Judas was seized with remorse. But let me point out that there is a big difference between remorse and true repentance. It's one thing to be sorry for what we've done, but true repentance involves a willingness to turn to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. 
The fact that Judas did not do that proves that he believed Christ to be a man and nothing more. He did not believe in Jesus as the son of the living God who was able to forgive sin. It's interesting to me that in the end, Judas really turned to the wrong people for help. He hoped that the wicked leaders would return the money to the temple treasury as a way to ease his guilt. But they were not willing or able to absolve him, for they were as guilty as he was. Filled with shame, Judas ended his life alone, left only with his memories and his regrets. Jesus had at one time said, It would have been better for the one who betrayed him not to be born. And indeed, Judas, it seems, came to believe that. So what can we learn from the life of Judas Iscariot? I think the pivotal point is best summed up by Charles Spurgeon, who warned, To have a good reputation and a false heart is to stand upon the edge of hell. Our secrets give Satan a foothold. Greed wasn't Judas's real issue, though. It was merely a symptom of the fact that he did not have total faith in Christ. From the beginning, Judas had failed to fully surrender himself to Jesus. People ask me all the time if I think Judas lost his salvation. Well, I don't really believe he ever had it to begin with. He had carried an old love, covetousness, into his new life, and he'd allowed his old materialistic way of thinking to guide him as he tried to follow Jesus. Though Judas continued to show up even when others did not, though he heard so much of Christ's teaching, he refused to apply Christ's words to his own life. I can't help but think that he chose not to meet Christ's eye whenever the Lord spoke those messages about our relationship to money. If only he had admitted that he was double-minded, trying to serve both God and money. If only he'd asked Christ to help instead of casting his lot in with Satan. But he didn't. The question that must be asked is, so what about you and me? I think we have to ask ourselves if we have any of our life that we are withholding from the Lordship of Christ. We have to be willing to give Jesus our whole life, not just the part we're comfortable giving. We can't remain a slave of this world if we call ourselves a servant of Christ. If you've come to realize that Perhaps you bear more of a similarity to Judas than you ever expected. If you realize you are also trying to carry an old love into your new life with the Lord, can I encourage you to repent? Remorse is not enough for even the most intense sorrow over our missteps. Even a lifetime of regrets is insufficient. Remember Esau who bargained away his birthright? He could change nothing despite his many tears. True repentance means that we're sorry, but sorry enough to do something about it, that we are willing to turn away from the sin towards Jesus Christ, for he alone is the only one who is able to forgive us. 
The wonderful thing is, though, he's not only able to forgive us, he's willing. My greatest encouragement is to let the word of God change you. Don't put off obedience. Don't continually make excuses or think that he's really not concerned about your divided heart, because he is. Give him everything that he's due. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you and thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that he is the Son of God and that he is able to forgive. More than that, Lord, he is willing to forgive. And so as we come and lay our burdens at Christ's feet, Lord, we pray that we would serve you fully committed in every way, Lord, that you would indeed be Lord of our lives. To the glory of God the Father. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at In the Word.